You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode of the Mothball Prophecies. Today we're talking to a person who quite literally had an integral part in the forming of this podcast. Jill and I would take time off of work to go to Pocatello to her estate sales. They're fantastic. When I asked Jill to be my co-host, it was on the way to one of her sales. Today we are with, in my eyes, an estate sale legend, Linda Davies of Wild Hair Estate Sales. Hi, Linda. Welcome. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. I try to make you really know how we feel about you in those first couple seconds because you will forever be a part of our story now. Yeah, you you literally are what brought us together and brought this together also. Because Jill and I, we've known each other for about eight years. Mm-hmm. And I we started, it, we go over it in about every episode. Anyways, we uh, met at a gym and then she was my OR nurse, recovery nurse for emergency surgery. And then I started doing her hair. And then we started to talk about antiques, as you do when you're with your hairdresser, mm-hmm. you talk about everything. And then we started to see your Facebook posts for estate sales and i was like oh shit these are good sales so i started sending the leaks to jill and i said take friday off we're going and so we started to take time off work for sales that seemed to have things that we would enjoy Mm -hmm. and we were headed to a stay uh, a sale and i had thought about the podcast for about a year and a half and jill had known about it and i uh said to her i said remember that podcast i was telling you about and she goes yeah what's going on with that and i said well um, do you want to be my co-host? And it was like a bomb of electricity went off in the car, like well, just kind of a cosmic event that it felt so right. It would have been wrong to not pursue it. Well, so that's yeah. the, the yeah, long and that short is, of that. Yeah. So, and we literally were, we stopped in front of the house where the estate sale was, got out of the car, started Jumping, hugging, and crying all at one oh go. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And then we started thinking of names, and we went, and here we are now. Yeah. And now? In your kitchen. In my kitchen. In your darling house. <laughs> your darling house. With some, when I tell you there's jars of buttons in front of us, and this amazing mason jar of fabric scraps, you were my type of gal. Like those, I can't wait to tell my mom, because she's always collected jars of buttons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're very excited to be here today. And we thank you so much for sitting down with us and going over what I think is interesting to a lot of people in the NT community, which is the back end of estate sales. Right. And why you do it. So tell me a little bit about your introduction into collecting. How did that start for you? Well, I started working for a friend of mine. I had never worked in antiques and really wasn't terribly attracted to old stuff. I mean, I I have some stuff that was family things, you Mm -hmm. know, and I love having those, but just because they're family things, Mm -hmm. like the table we're sitting at was my husband's great grandparents table. And you think about all those elbows that have been sitting Mm -hmm. on this table is monumental for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes it brings me almost to tears Mm -hmm. sitting at this table and thinking about them all sitting around it. So I started working for this friend of mine, and she really mentored me 
in antique prices, um, what was collectible at the time. And collections have really changed over the years. eBay has, eBay has really changed the look of antique mm -hmm. shopping. Mm -hmm. um, things that we thought were really scarce, we found out that they made a gazillion of them, you know, and they weren't worth the kind of money that we once thought they were because there there are so many made, like the Beanie Babies. You know, everybody thought that the Beanie Babies were going to be their retirement, um, mm -hmm. yeah. and now they're worth a dollar. Uh -huh. Oh, there was that famous cents. picture of the couple that yeah. got divorced, and they're sorting through the Beanie Babies in court, like oh, custody. Yeah. They're yeah, going back that. and forth. Oh. My mom was a huge Beanie Baby collector. Yeah, we'll have to, I'll show you that picture before we leave tonight, because it's this couple literally sitting on the floor in a courtroom in front of a judge separating Beanie Babies one at a time, this huge collection. Yeah, I remember standing in line with my mom uh -huh. to get the one Beanie Baby she hadn't gotten yet. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's sort of the, um, it sort of gives you a, a picture of of what collectibles are like, you know, Everybody talks about how we should buy low and sell high. But for the most part, most collectors buy high mm -hmm. because they go into an antique store and most antique stores aren't willing to dicker on their prices. And so they pay a lot of money for something that two years down the road probably doesn't have the same kind of value that they were hoping for. Do you think that people and dealers tend to do that because they understand the value of the story of the piece? Or do you think it's purely a selling point most of I the time? I think it's I think it's mostly a selling point. Yeah. And what they can come to. Mm -hmm. So you were telling me the other night on the phone that you started working for a woman right. here in town. Right. And that was I was doing the math after we got off the phone. You would have been in your forties? Probably fifty. No, maybe forties. And that's when you got into Right. That's late in the game. That is late in the game. And I was just, I was thinking about that and the amount of time I've spent collecting and the amount of, I guess the reputation you've made for yourself in that amount of time is astonishing. What were those early years like working in an antique store? Did you know what you were looking at or how did you learn all of that? No, she really, she really was an incredible mentor for me. And I really knew nothing about antiques, hardly at all. Um, but I was telling Sam that I worked for her for three years before I took a paycheck home oh because Carol would show me something. And I go, oh, my gosh, I've got to have that. <laughs> <laughs> so three years into the whole shtick, my husband said to me, do you get paid <laughs> for doing what you do? I said, I do. I do. And stuff. Which, you know? I mean, if it's going to go right back into what you're seeing... Because, I mean, being a dealer, you see all the best stuff first. Absolutely. Yeah, so you can really get your hands on some great things. That... I don't ever buy anything. Like, are you talking about like at my estate sales? Well, I guess then and when you were working in the shop. Oh, yeah. Because I will get into the estate sale thing because I have a theory. Okay. About that. <laughs> and you tell me about that chippy dresser. You were telling me about it the other night. That was your first antique, right? It was that I bought. Did you buy it from that store? Yes. I had to work a long time for it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a pink chippy, right? Pink Tell me about it. Pink chippy dresser that the gal that I worked for, um, 
she used to take buying trips. So she'd hook a trailer to the back of her suburban and she'd go to the East Coast and buy antiques and bring them back here. So she brought back this pink chippy dresser. And that was probably when I first started working with her in the 90s. I think it was the first thing that I bought from her. So my husband still uses it for his dresser. And it's so cute because he's a big guy, you know, and he goes to his little pink dresser. I know it kind of cracks me up every day. So did you stay um, within the antique community after that time, or did you move into another position after those three years? I worked for her for probably 10 years. I just had her start paying me instead of of taking stuff home. And then I started my own little shop. I started a consignment store, and it was perfect for me because I didn't have any overhead other than in my rent, you know, and Mm -hmm. utilities and things. But I didn't have much of my own stuff there. And every Monday morning, there'd be a huge lineup outside, people waiting to drop their stuff off. It was perfect for me. Did you consign everything or just vintage and antiques and collectibles? Mostly antiques and collectibles. You know, some some people brought in a few little um, contemporary things, but that was not my goal. Mm -hmm. You know, my goal was to give people an outlet for their antiques and collectibles because it's hard to sell those on your own. You mm-hmm. know how much you paid for them for one and you have some emotional attachment to them. But if they had bring them and drop them off with me, none of that mattered. Mm-hmm. You know? So it, w- it was a great business, but I got so busy doing this that I, I closed down. I had no time. Were you doing the consignment and the estate sale business at the same time? Mm-hmm. And the flea market. Oh my! So word. I started oh. all of those kind of... At the same time. So was it just one led to another, led to another, or did you just like, I'm doing this all at one go? Well, there was a guy here in town who did a flea market, and he called me one day and he said, you know what, I'm done. Mm. I'm done. So if you want my list of names, my list of vendors, I would love to give all of that to you. So that's how I started doing the flea market. He was also the same guy who did all of the estate sales in Pocatello. And he called me, I don't know, a year or two later, and he said, I'm done with estate sales. Should I start giving people your name? I said, absolutely. I have been swamped ever since. And that is so far from how we thought that story went. Really? Yeah. <laughs> really? Because that it's almost like it was just meant for you to be handed all that information. Uh-huh. Because, well, and dealers are not... Um, What's the word? People that deal within the antique community, it is that. It is a community. Mm-hmm. And it's tight. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, kind of everybody knows everybody and everybody knows who not and who to deal mm-hmm. with, right? Mm-hmm. So that, what a, one, a compliment. And a gift. And a gift. I, I mean, I, I love this guy. And he comes to almost all of my sales and just kind of slunks around. You know? <laughs> um, and I, I just have such a, a soft spot for him that sometimes I almost even cry when I see him because I'm so filled with gratitude over him just handing that over to me. That was a, that was a powerful thing for him to do for you, for you, for anybody. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's, uh, that's like handing over the keys to the pearly gates (laughs) of antiquing, really. For sure. So did you always have the name wild hair? Where did that name come from? You know what? I saw a sign one day. 
that said wild hair, whatever. And I thought, if I ever had a company, that's what I would call it. Most people, when they see wild hair or hear wild hair, think that it's because of my hair, because my hair is a little wild. Um, but it really had nothing to do with that at all. It's just a coincidence. I love that. That's Thanks. great. I love that that is just, yeah, that's a cool thing. Because when you know it, when it feels right, it feels right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually have had clients tell me that they thought that I would be uh, more successful if I had a better name than Wild Hair. That that to them didn't sound... I don't know. Very they sound professional. like the type of antique people I don't mm-hmm. like to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I did. I really debated for a while about changing my name, but it was so, it was so me that I thought, you know what? I guess they're just going to have to get used to it. Mm-hmm. And and now it's a very well known name. So I. Oh yeah. I'm digging it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it it does fit you uh-huh. to a T. Oh, good. To yeah. have that name. And I, you know, I, I dis, I don't hate is a strong word, but I dislike that side of the antique and collector's world mm-hmm. of the tunnel vision of what antiques should be mm-hmm. and vintage items and collections should be. And it's mm-hmm. that, it's just that, uh, it, re- it reminds me a lot of my grandmother's antiques, you know, they're only supposed to be like Regency and Queen Anne and oh, uh-huh. Wedgwood and all of those things when it's so... Linux. Yes, Lennox. <laughs> My biggest score of the century. We'll get to that. Uh. But it's, you know, it's those things. And until I started antiquing on my own, I realized the niche that I liked, which mm-hmm. is odd antiques and uh-huh. macabre and those kinds of things, because I think they tell a great story. Sure. And I think it's important that we let people know that whatever your collection is, it's valuable. Right. If if it means a lot to you. Mm-hmm. That's right. If it touches you. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't it's, have to be mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be anything. And you get to see so many people's history. You are literally a fly on the wall to people's lives. Oh, for sure. Do you generally come in in an estate sale at the end of life or when people are retiring or what does that look like? You know, it's a little bit of everything. Um really most of the estates that we do are for people who are downsizing. Moving to Arizona, you know, Mm -hmm. people my age who are tired of taking care of a five-bedroom house and they only want to take care of a one-bedroom house, you know. So we do some for people who die. And frankly, they're kind of um, my favorite. (laughs) Because there's probably a lot less restrictions on... Well, you know, a kid comes from California and hands me the key to his mom's house and says, send me a check when it's over. You know, um, that's the best because nobody's paying any attention to me. I love it. So the ones that do come out and find you, do they price their items? No, I price it all. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We get everything out. They don't, they just walk away Mm -hmm. and leave us with a house full and we get it all out and price it and sell it. So how long does it take you to get an estate sale priced and all that kind of stuff? Commonly, it takes two weeks from the start to the finish of the sale. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. Um, for any of you who have ever been to one of her sales here locally, like they, like you walk into the house and it's literally top to bottom full of stuff. To say that you're, you and your team are thorough is an understatement. Well, thank you. Yeah. And it's, they're so well organized. It's not chaos. Like some estate sales can be chaos. Right. But every sale I've been to of yours, 
it is a well-oiled machine. Like mm-hmm. it's you run a tight ship, like shit doesn't fly with you if it is going to be <laughs> out of order from the opening of the sale to the end of the sale. I've been to every day of your sales from the opening when everybody's lined up outside to the mm-hmm. box at Bag It Drag It, which is my personal fave. Mine too. <laughs> and so how big is your team to get an estate sale ready? It depends on the sale for sure. You know, I love to get in and do a lot of the pulling the stuff out by myself. So commonly I'll go into a house and spend the first day really not doing anything, but just knocking around, feeling the feel, you know, going into each room, sitting for a while, see how that all feels to me. Um, kind of how I want it set up. If somebody comes in with me on the first day, it ends up being a little chaotic because they, their job is to get everything out and get it on tables. And sometimes they just move so fast that I don't have time to get the feel of the house and get the feel of the people who have resided there. And that's really an important part to me to learn how to know them. Some people I come away... Some people, I come away from their homes, and I love them so much, you know, just from mm-hmm. the spirit that they leave in that home when they when they move or when they pass. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's really, really profound for me. Oh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> so I like to spend some time alone. But normally I have, I have three, four, five people who work for me most often, you know, and... Um, they do a great job. The guy who works for me, Bud, he he and I are like siblings, you know. Mm-hmm. I love him so much. <laughs> and we think alike. So I'd say, how much do you think we should put on this? Mm-hmm. We're always right on with each other. Always. Oh, I love that. You know, so he and I are way in sync. Mm-hmm. And sometimes his wife works for us and... We just have a great time together. I mean, he and I can sit and talk to each other like I can talk to you girls. Mm -hmm. He's just an, he's just a boy girl. (laughs) (laughs) I love a girl boy. (laughs) Well, and I, I just, I love the reverence that you have for the items that you're going through because I know like to me and I can also for Jill, it's, it's a personal experience to go through people's things. Oh, very much so. Mm -hmm. And I try to take my time like you do to understand who this person was. What mm-hmm. did they like? I went to your sale in Idaho Falls and it was at that dressmaker's house. Oh, that was a cool sale. It's a great sale. And there were great things that mm-hmm. that gentleman had. Mm-hmm. And you could really tell that his attention to detail touched every corner of that home, mm-hmm. but in the sweetest way. And there was no, everything was organized really well and tidy and he had, it was just, it was exceptional. And I think to hear that you take it just as serious and even more serious is so refreshing. It's even in my contract, oh. you know, that we will treat their homes with reverence and um, love. You, you can't go in and, and hate what you're doing no. when you're taking somebody else's life and laying it out on a table right. you know, and pricing yeah. it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No, I remember because I went to a sale recently and we bought the mid-century record player on the one. The house that had the prints for sale. Yeah, the print. The Uh Ansel Adams. And yeah, the Ansel Adams Uh prints and stuff. Uh And I just remember walking into that house and thinking, 
oh my gosh, this person was super interesting. Right. They've been everywhere. Right. And it's just, it, you almost got that, those chills when you walked in and it was just like, I want it, like, that's the person I want to be when I grow up. For sure. Yeah. Like they had the most amazing prints mm-hmm. and just like little knickknacks and all those stuff that just came from mm-hmm. all over the place. Mm-hmm. It was just amazing. I really admired that woman and I knew her kind of on the periphery. She and I would, we never sat down and had a big chat, but I knew her kind of around the edges of things. And by the time I finished her sale, I loved her girls. I loved her. She she had lost her husband early when her children were just tiny children. And she still loved life and lived it with gusto. I came away from that sale kind of a changed woman, you know? Yeah, yeah it kind of did. Like the prints I have and that mid-century stare, like my husband and I, we just look at it all the time. Do you? Yeah. We just are so excited because we're building a house and we're so excited to get it in the house uh-huh. and tell people where we found it, what's uh-huh. the story and uh-huh. that kind of stuff. And it's, uh-huh. it's that kind of stuff that I love about estate sales and antiquing. It's like you carry on that memory of right. that person. Absolutely. You may have never met them in your life, but right. you're carrying that on right. for them. Yeah. I like that yeah. too. Yeah. I, and I try to take something home from every sale. Um, and that sale... I took, I'll show it to you later, but I took home this print of San Francisco. Did I show it's you that? It's amazing. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. Of the rail, or not it, the railroad tracks, but the trolley tracks. It's a, uh, it's crazy. The composition of the shot and the depth of it uh-huh. is incredible. It yeah. really is. Yeah. And it takes you a minute to look at it. Like, and then once you realize what it is, it's like, oh my God. Like just the fact, like where they had to be for it and mm-hmm. what time of day and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Like that mm-hmm. stuff just, like mind-blowing. That print sat there the whole sale, mm-hmm. the whole sale. I took it home Saturday afternoon at three o'clock. Yeah, that print is it's full of quiet whimsy. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredible. Yeah. And people want to buy it from me all the time. We'll post a picture of it on our Instagram because oh, it, it. it is so... When you sent it to me on Messenger, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. 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 It's very cool. And you've seen a lot of collections. Oh, for sure. What are some of the, what are, walk, what is that like? Like, what are some strange things that you see or what do you think? And you go, man, they really loved this item. Cause you see everything. I do. Um, oftentimes, oftentimes the family comes in and gets those, you know, really unique kind of collectibles. But we did a sale last spring for a guy who, Almost everything in his house was World War I and World War II memorabilia. Oh, I think I saw that one. Of the trench art made out of the art- artillery shells. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those. So I called, um, I called one of the guys from Antiques Roadshow, mm. one of the appraisers who appraises Militaria. He and I had the greatest time together chatting about all of that Militaria and the best way to sell it, the best way to price it. We think that those people are inaccessible. Mm. His number was on the Antiques Roadshow website. Oh, this is I just called know. him up. Yeah. <laughs> you good know? intel. It was, so, it was so crazy to call him. He was the one who answered the phone. I didn't have to ask for him. Huh? Anyway, so that was probably the biggest, greatest collection 
I've seen in all the years that I've done estate sales. Because really, we probably had, you didn't come to that sale? No, I couldn't make no. it to that one. Oh, I, oh my God. That was before my schedule switched and I, yeah. I worked on Thursdays. We probably had 20 of my six foot tables filled <sighs> just right on top of each other of that um, <sighs> militaria. <sighs> It was it was very cool. He we had just, some great stuff. Our last interview was the first time I'd ever really heard of trench art. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh. I, how fascinating. What a fascinating antique to have. Oh, for sure. Because it's all one of a kind. And it for sure. It tells such an incredible time uh-huh. of history. I even joined um, Ancestry.com uh-huh. because there were so many names on that trench art mm-hmm. that I tried to find the families of some of those... Um, men whose names were engraved on that trench art. I wasn't successful in it, but I spent months getting that sale ready because I could price those things fairly easily, but the history of it bogged me down. I I couldn't get past the hurt and Mm. the, the war. And I mean, all of it was just bogging me down. Mm-hmm. It was very hard for me to do. And to think that most men in those first world wars and even today are still children. Oh gosh. For sure. And to be, I mean, in, in the trenches for that amount of time, mm-hmm. that that is how you spent your creativity. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. yeah. It, it was really interesting reading about all of that. So as far as collections go, that's probably been my favorite sale. I'd like to have one about once a year like that. That's just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I was talking to Jill and I thought, you know, now I am um, always Googling things. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Always. I'll stop what I'm doing. I'm like, I have to know right now. For sure. You have worked in two sides of the antique world with finding information. Oh, for sure. You have worked pre-Google Absolutely. and post-Google. What did you... I know that everybody's gonna be like, library books, Sam, geez. But to get that size of an estate sale ready having to pour over books and literature. What did you do to get those ready to price them accordingly? That's about what we did. Antique book after antique book after antique book. We did one a bunch of years ago, a 10,000 square foot house, um, Mm. a barn, all this outside stuff. And it took us four months to get ready because just for that reason, you know, our, our, only way of finding out the prices of those things was to pour over all of those books of glass and china and oh my gosh oh. it was amazing it was amazing but it was a good sale too and i and it was one of my very early sales mm. well i thought they'd all be like that <laughs> a 10,000 square foot house full of china and full of, crystal uh, and yeah full of thousands of dollars for the stuff have you ever walked into a lot of houses and been like nothing in here is gonna sell absolutely and i just walk away from those do you mm-hmm. i was curious about that yeah. yeah um do you guide with your gut on those sales you know uh kind of i mean if you walk into a house that is dirty mm-hmm. and smells like cigarettes mm-hmm. and you think about the time that it's going to take and how many, cause my mind is always working the dollar sign, mm-hmm. you know, how many hours I have to pay somebody to wash all those dishes and that kind of thing. You I know, didn't even so, think of that being a part of it. So if that 
if that is too overwhelming, I just have to pass on it. And I didn't used to. I never said no. And then I got bogged down, you know, with some of those sales where I wasn't making any money on it. And as much as I like to do community service, it's not my job yeah, to sure. do community yeah. service. I've I've got to I've got to look at the bottom line on them. Is but, there a trick to getting cigarette smell out of things? Yes, an ozonator. Oh, just a super expensive object option. Is it expensive? Well, I would just I just rent them, mm. but they'll take they'll take the smell out of almost everything. Wow, you know, cat pee. Oh dear. Oh. That's good to know. Yeah. Not yeah. that I have cat pee stuff, I but let's get <laughs> your house would be brand new. It shouldn't have cat pee at all. Yeah. In it. So walk me through some of your early collections when you first, you were telling me, I, I just got to hear more about the mixing bowls. Oh, well, I felt when you said the them. number. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not too woo 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 about astrology and all that kind of stuff. But I am a cancer baby, and I read after I started collecting that many cancer people love anything round, like the moon. Mm -hmm. And so it made so much sense to me that I would love mixing bowls. But I had like 385 mixing bowls. They were everywhere. They were on everything. I had no room to do anything, because some of them were enormous. So I kind of started... Well, I didn't, st- I shouldn't say I started it, but before anybody was selling on Facebook, I would do a kitchen table sale and I would put my stuff out on this kitchen table and I'd take pictures of it and post it on my Facebook. And I would make hundreds of dollars a day selling my bowls and my buttons. I sold gallons and gallons of buttons. And the next day I'd put something else out and do a kitchen table sale. It's how I funded all of my vacations. And then all of a sudden there's Marketplace and there's all of those Facebook Mm -hmm. selling sites, you know? Yeah. I was just on last night, actually, my very first online Facebook antique auction Oh, in a group I joined and Uh um, it was just oddities Uh and they had some cool stuff. I got a cicada in a glass dome. Oh, nice. I got, I was bidding on some other things. I got a postcard, a match to a postcard I have. I love postcards, Uh but I almost won an antique prosthetic leg. Oh, that was I've like, had antique prosthetic legs. I don't know why I'm fascinated by like old prosthetics, glass eyes. Um, yeah, I've had bottles of them. Oh, <laughs> breaking my heart. <laughs> I never post those because I feel like um, people will get kind of uh, grossed out by them yeah, and think that, that weird stuff. I don't know. Like that that one thing would lead to like that whole house is just Uh full of that Uh kind of stuff. Yeah, Uh I could see that. Next time, just go ahead and send me a private message. We'll we'll dicker back and (laughs) forth. Just give it to Sam. Sam will like pay top. Because I always like to have things in my house that because we do have a smaller house. I Uh like to have things in my house that people ask questions about. Uh huh. Because I just think it's fun when somebody goes over to my curio cabinet and they're expecting mm-hmm. interesting things. And then they see two bundles of hair and all my old hair. I have a lot of antique hair mm-hmm. stuff because I'm a hairdresser. Uh-huh. So, But I want to talk about your your collection that's sitting in front of us. Okay. Because it makes it fills me with joy. Well, a button is way smaller than a mixing bowl. <laughs> it is. This is true. <laughs> the transition is... <laughs> 
this is it takes up a lot less room sure yes but i didn't go from bowls to buttons i went from bowls to vases to you know i mean there's been a lot of things in between bowls and buttons because i mean <laughs> there's probably three hundred and eighty thousand buttons i can't even imagine you should do this like at in the states i'll do the how many buttons in the jar and yeah. you win the next house <laughs> i did it to win t-shirts once um, because I was doing a fundraiser for the Monarch Hotel. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So um, I had a, a jar of buttons, and there were thousands in a jar like this size, and people couldn't believe it. They were guessing 200 buttons, you know. But it's it's a fun way to, uh, I don't know, just break the ice. <laughs> <laughs> just so the listeners get a little bit of an idea, we'll, we'll have these up on the Instagram. There are one, two, three, four, Four, five jars of buttons ranging in size from uh, half gallon jars. This is probably three gallons. Uh-huh. And then there's kind of an, a glass urn that is, I would say, a gallon and a half. At least. And then there's a little milk jug of marbles. And then there's a cute pint jar or no. What is that? A quart? This is a quart. Of cute fabric scraps. Can I tell you where these came from? Please. Because this is really an incredible story. So in 2007, we lost a daughter to cancer. And the following spring, when they started doing the Relay for Life, I joined a team only to find out that I had to do a fundraiser for that team. So we were lying in bed one night, and I looked over at her dad, and I thought, he would have done anything to save her. Mm. He'd have given the shirt off his back. So the next morning, I got up with no plan and called 138 guys and asked if they would give the shirt off their back to cure cancer. Oh, my gosh. And so I took those and made a quilt that I called, he gave the shirt off his back for the cure. And these are all scraps Mm. from those shirts. So it's just a constant reminder to me of the stories. These men would come and tell me stories that were amazing about their losses. Mm. And some of those men had never, ever told their stories. And they would sit and cry for two hours telling me about their wife or their daughter or whatever. So anyway, I made that quilt. We sold raffle tickets for it and made about a thousand dollars for relay for life. And, and these are my scraps from those shirts. And, and this is one of the quilts. My girlfriend made it for me. Oh, with the shirts. um, She took pieces out of those shirts and made me this little quilt. So that's kind of my backstory on why, I love quilts and I love all things sewing and um, textile related. Yeah, mm-hmm. because of that. Uh-huh. Which is, I, that's just, an, I am often not at a loss for words. <laughs> that is the reason the stories are so important. It's absolutely the reason. It's absolutely. And so often we don't, We don't tell our story. Mm. We don't hear other people's story. And sometimes our stories are so interlocked with someone else's that we feel like we're telling their story. Mm -hmm. 
instead of our own. And so I hesitate to, to tell a lot of my stories because of that, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, we've, we've come into such a curated world Mm -hmm. that we genuinely, truly, even when we see the worst of whatever somebody has put on social media, it's still not their true worst. Mm Mm-hmm. Because shame is such a strong liar Mm -hmm. that we tend to, if we feel like we might fail or we feel like somebody will say something bad about us or because it all comes from that, you know, playground bullying, we stop ourselves from such moments of greatness Mm -hmm. and helping somebody else with a story. Like you helped all of those men turn over a new stone in their grief. Right. And as a society, we don't really let men and boys do that. Mm-hmm. We just expect them to carry all the burdens of emotion and not work yeah. through them. Mm-hmm. One guy, dro- he told me that he drove around for two hours before he could stop at my house and bring me his shirts because he was crying so hard. Oh, Linda. <laughs> and you share, now you share this special part of your collection with a granddaughter, right? Mm-hmm. So do you guys, does she send you buttons? Do you send her buttons? You know what we send each other. So this is my little jar of what we call who's it's and what's it's. So we just find little trinkets that we send to each other. Where does she live? She lives in North Carolina. Oh. Yeah. So I don't get to see her very often. Um, But we have the who's it's and what's it's in common. So I'll call her and say, guess what I found today? (laughs) A miniature airplane, you know, and she'll be all excited. And how old is she? She's 10. Oh, Oh my God. So we've been collecting since she was a toddler, little tiny things. so great. And that's, you know, I love to hear that because my grandmother is the reason I have such a a love for collecting. Is it? To you, they're who's it's and what's it's and little trinkets, but Mm -hmm. to her, they're her grandma. For sure. For sure. The way that you touch people's lives and... You are such an endearing and kind person and we've only ever known each other through your sales and then sitting at your table today that it's no wonder you have a successful business. Well, thank you. Because you are what everybody hopes somebody will be when they go through their stuff. Wow. Like my grandmother's biggest fear is somebody's going to go through her things after she's dead mm-hmm. and bastardize her collection. Mm-hmm. And I think that... It says a lot about the the reason you are so busy is because people know you won't do that. Right. Thank you. Do you do your other children have any interest in carrying this on or collecting? Mm. My daughter, who is the little girl's mother with the who's it's and what's it's, she's sort of a minimalist mm. and uh, likes more of the mid-century modern mm-hmm. antiques which I, I guess are kind of antiques now. Um, so she's more that look. And yeah, I don't, I don't see any of them rushing to <laughs> grab my stuff when I... Unless they start at the, the 40s or 50s train too. Maybe. Yeah, not so much. I think, I mean, I said to them one day, because we used to travel a lot, and I said to my son, what would you do if something happened to us, you know, because people get in accidents all the time. I just called DI. He said, come and pick it all up. Um, Well, maybe I'll show you a few things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That you don't want to just give away. No, because then there'd be me and Jill and the rest of our guests at the DI going, holy shit. What happened? I know. Yeah. Their kids didn't know. My, you know, the biggest drive for this is I joined an antique study group and 
the women are all 50 years older than me. Uh huh. And their kids, I don't think, know these stories mm-hmm. about, you know, they just think, oh, mom buys stuff uh-huh. and she does this and she does that. Right. And I was like, man, people got to know these about the things you see and you turn over and the dishes and all of those things. Mm-hmm. It's just, and speaking of things found at the DI, what do you feel like as you've done this for a long time? What are some of your, you think antiques that are either overdone or you never thought that they would be popular as antiques? You know, what has really surprised me is that the shabby chic look is still so popular. Girls painting the antique furniture, you Mm -hmm. know, and scraping part of it off. And I love that look and I have a lot of it. But 20 years ago, I would have said, you know what? It's on its way out. Yeah. I never dreamt that it would last 30 years. I mean, really, it started probably in the late 80s, early 90s, and it is still bigger than life for people to paint furniture. So that has surprised me because there's some beautiful antiques that get painted. And and as much as I like it after it's been painted, it does sort of hurt my heart a little bit to see this beautiful wood. It breaks my heart. Does it? I really struggle with the shabby chic on, especially like mid-century vanities. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, and I get it. I get that it's just a piece of furniture. Right. Oh, but it just, oh, it breaks my heart. It really is hard for me to swallow the look of it because Mm -hmm. I know what's underneath of the Mm -hmm. paint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can understand if something is like broken and it needs fixing up a facelift that i totally mm-hmm. get i get that too but when you take something that's practically still in mint condition uh-huh. and then do i'm like why like i i get it it doesn't fit your personality right. then leave it alone right yeah and i i mean i get that you know like the queen anne stuff and the regency things and mm-hmm. stuff like that does look great painted shabby chic oh, it it's does. got a ton of details a mid-century moderate or post-modern buffet no. does not look great painted shabby no. chic no and I think it's like, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, makes my stomach turn. I know. I already, when, when my husband picked up that record player, I told him, I'm like, you're not painting it. You're not doing, you're not scraping. You're not, oh. I was like, you can fix the record player in it. Uh-huh. And that is uh-huh. it. So that's our plan. We're going to bring it back to being a usable record player. Oh, good. Dario, and I told yeah. her if that fails, they can just put a Bluetooth speaker on the inside and call it good. Oh, for that's sure true. you could. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to try it. He wants to try it first. Uh huh. But I'm pretty sure we're going to go with the Bluetooth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, YouTube's come such a long way that you could really, I mean, I learned how to do this on YouTube. For sure. You know, we learned, I learned how to garden through YouTube or anything. I learned to embroider. Uh huh. The problem with trying to fix up those old pieces of, um, I'm going to call them electronics for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, is that you can't find the parts. You can't yeah. find the tubes, you know, and if you can find the tubes, they cost so much money that it's prohibitive for most people yeah. to yeah. to spend $200 on a tube to fix their radio. I sold a guitar a couple of weeks ago, and it was from the 60s, and it was all run on tubes. The amp was right in the case. It was a cool, cool It was cool a cool-looking guitar. And the... And I went on YouTube to learn how to work it. And I looked at this list of 10 things that you shouldn't do with one of those guitars. And the number two on the list was never sell it. (laughs) (laughs) 
So when I sold it, um, the girl that bought it was so excited. But if those tubes ever go out, it's going to be expensive for her to, you know, replace those. Yeah. So that's why it's hard on those, mm-hmm. those pieces that as much as you'd like to restore them, sometimes it's really, really expensive to do it. Yeah. What do you wish more people would restore that you see at a sale that people just keep walking past that item and you're like, oh, guys, if you would only just um, go. Or does it surprise you when people walk past items that you know the value of and they just oh, for sure. overlook them? Oh, for sure. But we've all got our little mm. niche, mm-hmm. you know. Um, if I saw this bottle of buttons sitting on the mantle, I would go for that before I went for a Roseville piece of pottery or something, mm-hmm. you know. That wouldn't even enter my mind to buy that Roseville. I'd rather buy this bottle of Hundred percent. I'm on board with you on that. Yeah. So yeah. people just people see what they want to see. They they come looking for whatever their niche is. Mm-hmm. What are some of your tips to make an estate sale work the best for you? What are your to work the best for me? Well, to work the <laughs> best for you and for a consumer. And for the for the consumer, um, get there early. Don't be pra- afraid to pay full price for something because. Really, on on the night that we open, most of the really good stuff goes away. And so I would say don't be afraid, you know, to spend some money on things. Because if you fall in love with it, you might as well get it. Because I hardly ever have bought anything that I've regretted. But I have not bought some stuff that still sticks in my head what are those yeah, items? What, what oh are the my ones gosh. that got away? One was a dresser and we were at an auction and it was not expensive at all. But my husband tapped me on the shoulder and he said, mm, I think you've gone high enough on that. Mm. So by the time I turned around and argued with him for a little while, <laughs> it was gone. So I'm still a little, uh, a little frustrated <laughs> over that one. But I don't know. You, you know, you see... A, you see things all the time that you kind of wish you would have bought. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time. And what about you girls? Have you Are you looking back on things that you wish you would have bought? Or do you go back and hope that they're there? Both. Yeah. Uh-huh. But there's there's definitely been things that I've walked away from. Like I used to always go to Park Avenue Antiques in Idaho Falls uh-huh. and pour over the postcards. Oh. I, I wish with every fiber of my being I would have bought every damn one I thought was interesting. Because that's exactly what they are, is interesting. And you right. never really get tired of looking right. at them. Right. So I've walked away from pieces like that. But I don't I don't have any that really stick out in memory. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of impulsive. Yeah. I, I did. I totally there's times that Jill and I argue over pieces at your estate sales. Really? Like there was yeah. one I went to that there was black Pyrex. Oh, yeah. The black yeah. snowflake. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I... Went in the front door and beelined it to that. And I didn't care how much it was. Uh-huh. I love black. Uh-huh. And I, Jill, she was like, are you shitting me? Because I was, and then I set something down that she picked up later and yeah. it worked out just fine. I always, my thought is if it was meant to be mine, it is going to be mine. And so if I kind of hesitate on something or walk away, if I come back and it's still there, then it's like, okay, that's supposed to be mm-hmm. mine. Because I, I feel that's how I feel with my pieces. It's like you're, it's meant to come home with me. It's, it's, I'm going to use it because everything I buy, I use. Mm-hmm. Like all my Pyrex, I use. I don't put it on display or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so I always like, <laughs> I'm that one person that like will 
keep swerving the table five times, oh. looking, uh-huh. holding, and uh-huh. but no, I, I there's nothing I don't really regret. Mm-hmm. Not getting because mm-hmm. we do a fast scan. We go in and do a fast scan right. of the wholesale, right? Top bottom, look for the items that we saw online uh-huh. to see, and then everything that is a, a yes or a maybe uh-huh. goes in the basket. Uh huh. And then we do the slow stroll. And we, we always tell people, look under the tables. Right. Like the Lennox porcelain I got from you is, I, I think I called Jill like almost immediately after that. And I was yeah. like, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> so I was, you came, I came to one of your box at Bag at Dragons, uh-huh. which for those of you new here and new to Linda's sales is a godsend. She gives you a Home Depot box or a U-Haul box. Either a one. box. With the sides up and you, you fill it for $10. Or 15, We're up to 15. Depending on yeah. the sale. Yeah. And, or if you can drag it, it's 75% off right. all the big items. And my husband and I came up to the sale. We had our son. I had him on my back and I had saw the porcelain online and I broke the cardinal rule and I didn't look under the table, but I put it in my $10 box at the bottom. And I got a bunch of great linens from that sale too. Linens oh, which is another of my loves. Oh. <laughs> so I got a whole mess of things from that sale and I was pleased as punch. And we got down the hill to Maverick and I opened Facebook up to send the picture of the porcelain to my mom. And like a dumbass, I read the note that was on it in the car and not here at the sale. Oh. And it said, the rest of the set is under the table. <laughs> oh. And my husband got back in the car and I went, we have to go back up. And then I did the 75% off in my brain for the China because it was priced appropriately. Right. And I come back up and I walked up to you and I said, I just got that China and I put, I only took the platter and the rest is under the table and you had, I think it was like 275 on it. Mm-hmm. And I offered you 75% off and you looked at me and you said, well, how much did you already give me? And I went over, I think we had spent $50 and you went, how about 10 more dollars and you can take the rest of it. And my stomach dropped Aww. and I looked and I think my face said it and you said, yeah, it's like a thousand dollars worth of China. And I said, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the reason the porcelain is so expensive to me, like I told you on the phone is my grandmother has always collected China mm-hmm. and we ate dinner on Lennox porcelain when we would go over there for Sunday dinners mm-hmm. and Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so it was like this full circle of collecting mm-hmm. and I just was giddy like a kid the whole way home. Oh Yeah. And she it's called me beautiful. Right away. <laughs> it's this beautiful. I'll post it. It's a it's a complete sixteen person place setting, right? And it's all in those great nineteen eighties quilted padded beautiful Lennox like the porcelain keepers. And it is a it's platinum edged with this beautiful bright po- floral pattern. It's most definitely was meant to live at my house. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It I hate beautiful. you every day for it, but I'm glad you got it. I'll, next time at my house, we'll have a cup of coffee out of yeah, it. We have to. Because we need to use it. Because it's just in there. That's a crazy thing because that set of china, that year that I got that set of china, three different homeowners gifted me with a set of china that was left after the estate sale. So that was one of them that had been gifted to me that I was like, Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know what to do. I need another set of China. (laughs) Right. But the serendipity of it all now. Absolutely. Is, yeah, it's my, and it sits in an old 1800s chest of drawers. Nice. In my entryway. Mm -hmm. Nice. It's so pretty. I love it so much. Whenever I talk about it, I take somebody over and I pull a piece out. (laughs) And then I'm like, oh, 
you're that lady now. You're like, come here, come, <laughs> come, look come on, come look at my china. And people are like, what the hell are you showing me this for? I don't care. And I'm like, it's platinum. It's Lennox. I know. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's crazy how we get with our stuff that mm-hmm. we fall in love with. Mm-hmm. We do want to share it with everybody. Mm-hmm. We want them all to look at it. Oh yeah. Some, I used to post pictures of my mixing bowls mm-hmm. and say, aren't these gorgeous? And people would go, oh yeah. They're great, Linda. Thanks. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, that's a guiltily and shamelessly why we do this podcast because I want to, I want an inside look at everybody's stuff. Uh huh. Cause I'm one, I'm nosy and Snoopy, but I, I just, I, I love everything about it. It's the beauty of doing estate sales because mm-hmm. yeah. you get the inside track. Well, if you ever decide to homes. sell, we'll have to talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk numbers. And- <laughs> I actually had somebody stop in at an estate sale not long ago and offer to buy my business. I said, well, I didn't even take his name. Mm. I mean, what's wrong with me? I had the perfect opportunity and I didn't know how to do it. So... Yeah, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't. No. He walked away and I thought, go. Oh, that was unusual. <laughs> That's an unusual conversation. Yeah, like, I, first of all, I'm very busy at these yeah, things. Yeah, so come and- yeah, if you ever see her, she is constantly on the go. Like, and in the cutest little linen apron. Yes. Oh, yeah. so cute. <laughs> so we do this thing at the end of the show that okay. um, Jill hates it because I make the choices really hard. We do a uh, imaginary estate sale walkthrough. Okay. There's only two items to choose from in each room that we're going to, and they're your deep loves, and you can only pick one. Okay. All right. So the one we're going to today, we're just in a cute little small town okay. at a tiny farmhouse that the couples lived in for 60 years. Okay. And they're paring down and moving, right? To be closer to their children. And then when I tell you they've collected everything, it's everything. Okay. Okay. We first walk into the living room. There's cute little coved ceilings and arched doorways. And on the tables is a collection of jars of buttons or sewing boxes. Sewing boxes? Mm-hmm. The vintage ones with the tongue and groove, the wood ones. And you can only pick one. I'd pick the buttons. The buttons. For sure. The sewing box. You would? Mm-hmm. I love boxes. Oh, I, I love boxes too. too. <laughs> I'm a sucker for a container. Anytime yeah. my husband will see me, he's like, put the box down. I'm oh. like, but look, it's like super cute. Yeah. <laughs> I've bought some incredible boxes. I have one that is uh, hand carved on the top. I'll send you a picture when I get home. And it's all, it's got the dovetail uh-huh. sides and it's only about this big, about three inches by eight inches. And it's velvet on the inside oh. and it holds my antique uh, salt spoons and uh, sugar oh. tongs. Those oh, were fun. my first collectibles with my grandma. Oh, fun. Yeah. So I'm a sucker, for, but both of them, like that was a hard choice for yeah. me. Mm. So I think I'm going to go buttons this one. Oh God, I already feel bad. It's not even a real antique. <laughs> yeah, you know how I feel. <laughs> All right. So now we're, we've walked a couple of steps. It's a small house into the dining room in the kitchen. Okay. It's shared. Mm. We spot authentic Jada. It's not a reproduction. And she has several pieces that are from the different handovers of Jada at the time. Okay. And she also has antique stoneware bowls. I'd go to the Jada right now. Because it's hot. Hot. But what would you pick for you? I would pick the Jada right now. Yeah, 100% Jada. I'd go home crying because I want them both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. So you can send Ethan in after. I know. I'd stay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go with the stoneware. Would you? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm going back and forth between, I will. I love Jadeite. I really do. But right now it's just not me. Mm. Like 
It's just not. It didn't ask to be personally attacked, but okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I get that because I have an affinity for like stoneware coffee mugs. Mm-hmm. Love a coffee mug that feels good in my hand. Yes. Mm-hmm. A good, yeah. And a good bowl. Like, yeah. You can't, you can't find a good bowl. Anymore. Solid sits That's on the counter. That's why I like my Pyrex. It's a good bowl. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. The last area of the house we wander through is the garage. Okay. Perfect. This guy had everything. And it's very well organized. You didn't have to do a lot of work. And we have two choices to look through aside from the many things that you find in a garage. Sure. There's a handmade wooden ladder uh-huh. or wrought iron garden art and pieces. Uh, the garden art. Yeah. I'd go the garden art. I'm going with the ladder. Are you? Yeah. Which is surprising. Yeah, that is. Surprising. I garden uh-huh. extensively. Uh-huh. I go the ladder because it's a cool piece to have in your living room. Or in a children's room or anywhere like that. And I probably already have the garden art at my house. You probably do. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, Linda, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And I just, I love now that I could, I think I could sincerely call you a friend. I think definitely we could. And I can't wait to, I mean, you got a lot of killer sales coming up. We got to schedule some time to make it up. Oh my gosh, next weekend is... To you. Make sure if you're local to follow along on Linda's Facebook at Wild Hair Estate Sales. She posts them early enough that you can schedule the time off or figure out if you're going to need a U-Haul to go to it. And always bring your truck. If you have a truck, bring the truck. Bring your truck. (laughs) And and a friend. Yeah. (laughs) Or Linda will help you carry it out. That's right. (laughs) And always check under the tables. Always. I hope you find some good shit and I hope it's covered in dust. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Linda, Linda, Linda. I am so glad that, for one, that we got to sit down with her. And for two, that she was so candid with us about her business. She, I don't, she just, she was just an amazing person and she had the fact that she didn't start all this until later on. Right. It almost gave me hope. Yeah. Cause I think we think that we're supposed to be successful in like your twenties and thirties and that's the trajectory of your entire life. Right. And what was it like? She started in her forties, almost fifties. Yeah. And that gives me hope because I turned 40 this year and it's like, Oh man, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, we've done it all. We've seen it all. I can't do any more with my life. And yeah, I was. That is just, I think, one of the most inspiring parts. Parts about her is she didn't really have like a hyper interest in the antique world. No, and she was very straight. She was like she had none, and then it kind of just f- fell into her lap directly, and, and yeah, yeah, into her lap, and everything else just kind of kept going. And that in itself makes me hopeful. Like I'm on the right path. Yeah. Because this fell into our laps. For sure. I just feel like we're going to be steamboating going. Yeah. Yeah. And it already, I mean, we've had, we have to thank all of you guys that listened because the show launch and the last couple of weeks have gone 10,000 times better than we could have ever imagined. So humbling, you guys. We, We were excited. And the fact that you all were so excited to listen, it... I'm not even kidding when Sam and I say we had tears in our eyes every week when we see the downloads and and who are listening, your comments and thank you guys. Just thank you so much. Cause we, you know, it's nice to know that there's people out there that are just as curious as we are about people's stuff. 
and that we're all not the same collectors. Yeah. Like that in itself is super humbling. So thanks. Thanks for yeah. listening. Thank you guys. Love you guys. Love you guys. So we talked about some pretty interesting stuff during her interview and then in the, the estate sale walkthrough. And one of the things that we talked about was the Lennox porcelain that I got at her home sale. And I'll put the pictures up today on the so Instagram. Pretty. And it's just, they're, they're gorgeous and they feel so special to me. And I got this info about Lennox from uh, companyhistories.com. It was really a neat website because they have the history of thousands yeah. of companies on yeah. there. Like how much they're worth, their stock value. It was cool. So uh, Lennox Porcelain was founded in 1889 by Walter Scott Lennox. As Lennox's ceramic art company in Trenton, New Jersey. But Lennox started as an American art pottery and it started more as an art studio rather than a large manufacturer at the time. And But Lennox dreamt of creating fine china as great as other companies that were popular at the time. But the technique was really difficult to master. And wealthy Americans turned mostly to trusted uh, European companies for their fine china. So not only did he have to learn how to make this fine dining ware correctly, he had to overcome that American prejudice for American-made China and also find the money to do all of this. The early years of the company, he suffered high expenses from trying to perfect their China to a low return on sales. He, they were making great stuff, but people were not buying it because they didn't trust it. And there were some changes in business ownership as Lennox bought out his partner in the business from the beginning and then he continued on his own as a singular owner. He brought these two potters over from Bellic, Ireland to try and produce his fine of china that was known as Bellic china. And it was a thin ivory colored uh, fine porcelain with extremely high quality. This was another almost fruitless venture for Lennox. His debt had become so large that his landlord only agreed to let him keep the building if they could design it to be easily flipped back into like apartment buildings. Yeah. They were like, listen, dude, you're not doing a real great job and we want to make money off of you. But also if you fail, we're turning this directly into. Like, <laughs> hey, you've got this one chance. That's it. Better like make it work. Is <laughs> <laughs> the M&M of fine porcelain. So the next part of this, it was incredible for me to read. In the early year of the new century, Lennox's health began to deteriorate rapidly. He was becoming blind and paralyzed, and, but he didn't want to shy away from his work. So he showed up to the factory every day, carried to his desk by his chauffeur, and he strictly relied on his sense of touch to test the quality of the china. And his eyesight slowly started to go away and he became blind. So he trusted his assistant, Harry Brown, to pass on all the designs and the artistry of Lennox at the time because he couldn't see it. Which I hope Harry asked for a really good raise with that. Like. <laughs> no doubt. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and then in 1906, the Lennox Inc. was born and their first shipment was sold to San Francisco. I, I missed the name of the company where it was promptly destroyed in an earthquake. Oh. But while digging through the rubble, they found a box of Lennox with a plate that was unbroken and it looked just as beautiful as the day it was made. It was pristine. They described it as being super shiny. This became an integral part of Lennox's marketing. Harry Brown took this plate to Tiffany's and was like, hey, look, this fucking plate didn't break. Buy our porcelain. That's his exact Which that quote. was, I mean, 
you can't deny the fact of how well it was made because it it literally survived, survived an, an earthquake. Survived an earthquake. Maybe buildings should start being made that way. Athletics <laughs> porcelain. <laughs> so, and then Tiffany's was like, oh shit, this is super dope. Let's buy some. So Tiffany soon became Lennox's first account. And then following Tiffany's lead, because other people were like, oh shit, Tiffany's is selling this. We should probably sell it. They started to get accounts across the country. And then by World War One, Lennox had garnered the reputation that they had fought so hard for. They were finally trusted and revered by the American people. Lennox produced fine china for four presidents. Woodrow Wilson ordered a 1,700-piece tableware set from Lennox for $16,000 in that time money. Subsequent orders for complete sense for the White House also came from these presidents. Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1932, Harry Truman in 51, Ronald Reagan in 81. Walter Scott Lennox died in 1920, but when he died, his company was out of debt. They were at the top of the market and his China was trusted. So I think he'd probably died a happy man. Mm, For sure. And then after the Second World War, there was a push for domestically made products and products that were made here and not in Europe or China or anywhere else. So Lennox needed to change the course of how they supplied because before this, they just sold sets of dinnerware. You had to buy a complete set to have Lennox porcelain. So they decided, okay, we need to change this because incomes are lower after the war, but we still need to have that uh, the, the patriotism and stuff to sell our products. Right, and the same quality that was expected. Yeah. So they started selling uh, sets in five pieces, three pieces, or singular and this was interesting. Lennox was the first company to create the bridal registry. Really? So they were like, okay, people aren't buying our entire sets anymore. How do we get an entire set into somebody's home? Well, people were getting married at a high rate after the war. Right. So they made it so you could register for a singular piece of Lennox porcelain. And that way your guests could help you buy the entire set. Which in itself is a genius marketing like. You can't have buy all of it, but grandma could buy a dinner plate. Well, and- you think about, okay, my grandma has porcelain and it's been a prized possession. Lots of grandmas have fine china mm-hmm. because it was a wedding gift. Yeah. And that started the tradition that you had fine china given to you at your weddings. Also, I never got fine china. As- I didn't either, but I did register for dinnerware at Dillard's when I got married. I read. I don't think I actually registered for dinnerware. I don't know what I registered. I think I registered for kitchen gadgets. Oh yeah, because I love cooking, mm-hmm. and I didn't have any cool like the KitchenAid mixer was yeah, like the I one thing so I cheap. wanted. I was like, that's all I want, and everybody's like, well, what else? This is it. Nothing. Well, then Lennox um, in the sixties, Lennox acquired Bryce Brothers Crystal and applied the same high standard to its product, adding what we know as Lennox Fine Crystal today. They also made a ton of other things. There was like a time they made luggage. There was a time they made sterling silver. They've made figurines. Like they started to purchase a ton of other companies that had great products, but the quality wasn't quite there yet. And then they put the Lennox name on it. So by the 80s, they had just an extensive amount of stuff that was branded under the Lennox name. So what we're saying is we just gave you guys a bunch of stuff to start looking for. Yeah, sorry about it. Because I want some Lennox luggage now. (laughs) <laughs> right. I just roll up to the airport and be like, hey, what up? This is Lennox. Jealous? 
oh, you don't know anything about it. Let me info Let dump. me tell you something. <laughs> so that was that was really cool to uh, look into because I had never, I did not know any of no, that history. All you, you've ever heard is Lennox, China. You don't ever hear about the history, which it was really fascinating to learn about. It's quite extensive, more extensive than I thought. And the other cool thing we got to hear about, we heard about this twice in one day. So it was so weird when we heard it the first time. We're like, oh. And then Linda mentioned Trenchart again. And <laughs> Sam and I looked at each other like, <laughs> why don't we know about this? And how did we hear about it in the same day from two different people we were interviewing yeah. that have no connection? <laughs> it's the, we both immediately gook like as soon as we left. We're like, what is Trenchart? And oh, guys, if you have not Googled it, we'll put pictures on our Instagram, but damn. It's very, very, That's very all cool. I have to say is damn. So there is a lot of information on trench art out there. So again, Google it and look. But we found a video on YouTube and the gentleman's name is Jim Cassell. He is a collector of history, military and otherwise. Uh, he So if you read some of the articles, they'll tell you these stories of the trench art started in the trenches and people were trying to bring back souvenirs and mementos for their their loved ones to carry on their memory. And you get this image in your brain of like them just like being just completely destroyed in like, a trench and they're like, I have to finish this piece. Yeah, no, uh, Jim just straight out said that's a lie. <laughs> so trench art started in World War One, going through World War Two, and it was the soldiers in the hospitals. Yeah, as they were convalescing, that was like part of their rehab. Yeah, they had nothing to do because they were just healing. So, uh, and not just regular healing, but World War One healing. Yeah. Yikes. Ow. But um, a lot of the art you'll find is actually made out of the French 75 millimeter artillery shells. So they would go and find these shells and they would want the ones with no cracks or dings or anything in them. And they would just literally flip it up, hold it, hit it with something. If it rang, you knew you had a good one. Once they had it, they would use a technique called repose, which is a pounding technique on metal. So what they would do is they would draw their design on the paper, apply it to the artillery shell, and much like a stencil for a tattoo, they would start pounding into the shell. Once that was done, they would remove the paper after punching the metal thousands of times. They would melt it, polish, or heat it to soften up the materials so that the shell wouldn't crack while it was being worked with. Various items were made, including lamps, figurines, letter openers, toothpick holders, sake glasses, ashtrays, and so much more. Trench art was sometimes marked with the maker's name and the place it was created. Uh, one of the pieces that Jim does show on his YouTube video was a cannonball from the Civil War, and it had uh, Gettysburg tapped into it, and it was made into a lamp. Uh, this seriously was a rabbit hole for both Sam and I. Uh, Jim did mention that a lot of the places where these wars were fought, um, a lot of the people will do the same technique so that you could take a souvenir home and stuff like that. But seriously, the stuff that it was just incredible. Well, and the, the fact that it was created at a time out of necessity and not to make money in the first instance. No, it 
it quite literally was just something to pass time. Right. And they did, it wasn't just like the artillery shells. They did like they would find pieces of shrapnel and do the same kind of relief or punch work and make a postcard. Or they would make lighters or there was match, uh, like match and toothpick holding things from smaller artillery shells. Yeah. And the the fact that they, because they didn't have a stencil, they made it themselves. Yeah. And they just put that relief onto it. And then the way they fluted some of the artillery shells by melting and like then hammering it more. And, and it looks, it looks like it's not even made out of metal. That part of the. No, some of them I thought were wood. It's an incredible thing to look at when you know why it was made. Like instead of just looking at it and be like, oh, okay. No, because that quite literally is a piece of history in your hands. The and the, the other interesting part to me about it was the uh, prisoner of war trench art. Yeah. That was made during World War II. And, mm-hmm. and there were prisoner of war that made in, there was Japan and Vietnam and Guam and all this stuff. And they were, they were making that as a way of charting their time until they were free yeah and the other thing is is these were found throughout all wars mm. not just world war one world war two yeah any war that was when it was most notable was in world war one because there was such a high concentration of it but right. it was it goes all the way back to napoleon yeah and i don't know i wonder like maybe going to france and then finding that yeah, because they're still pinging like with metal detectors and digging it out. Of yeah, the because after the war, it's not like somebody comes and like street sweep stuff. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. They're like bring me out your garbage, guys. The war's <laughs> over, guys. The cleaners are coming. <laughs> get your crap, or it's gonna get sucked up. Speaking of crap, oh dear lord. <laughs> so we mentioned in Linda's episode the Beanie Baby divorce trial. Oh man. And for some ungodly reason, this has cemented itself into my memory. Like, I forgot all about Beanie Babies until she said that. I remember standing in line with my mom to get the Beanie Babies. And I'm like, I hate these fucking bears. I do. I'm sorry, mom. And there was, we would go to Spud Day, right? We'll we'll cover that. That's an embarrassing thing to say out loud. (laughs) We're from Idaho, guys, okay? Potatoes, Potatoes. are a big-ass deal. <laughs> and my hometown has two weeks off for harvest of potatoes. My school that I went to. We also have a spud day, okay? I don't want to fucking hear any grief about it, okay? <laughs> Another embarrassing quotable. My high school was shaped like a potato cellar. And you are listening to 2000, 2006, 2007's uh, Shelly Russet mascot. Yeah, I was a potato and I was not to be fucked with. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. So the beady baby divorce court, this, <laughs> this information comes from none other than HuffingtonPost.com. And this was written by Brittany Wong in February of 2017. Everybody lost their goddamn minds with Beanie Babies, okay? And rumors were swirling everywhere that they were going to make people rich. Like, it was going to be your retirement fund. Back then, you didn't have really, like, the internet was, like, (laughs) still... So how did this rumor start? It was the first viral sensation. It was. And it was, when you look at a Beanie Baby, okay? So they're a stuffed animal, and they're called Beanie Babies because they're filled with these plastic PVC beans. And when I was reading about it, they were saying, like, (laughs) 
they were so great and lifelike because they moved. <laughs> and I was like, I never thought that when I looked at a Beanie Baby, like, how is that a real bear or is it a Beanie Baby? You're like, oh my God, I have real life bears <laughs> in my house. No, no. Bears don't come in purple and teal. Tie-dye. Bright pink. No. And with an ear tag. <laughs> so the cat you could not bend. No. Don't fucking take it off, which we'll get into the the <laughs> resale value with the tag. So this picture that we're going to post on the Instagram, the caption below it is a, I'll read the direct quote, November 5th, 1999, Las Vegas, Nevada. USA attorney Frank Toddy looks over papers while his clients, Francis Mountain, sorts out Beanie Babies with her ex-husband, Harold Mountain, in Judge Gerald Hardcastle's family courtroom in Las Vegas, November 5th. The couple, who were divorced four months ago, were ordered to divide up the collection, valued at $2,500 to $5,000, but were unable to do so by themselves. The collection was ordered spread on the courtroom floor and divided up one by one under the supervision of family court Judge Hardcastle. Could you just imagine uh, the court reporter just like, I didn't go to school for this. Oh, fuck my life right now. Who cares? Just give her the pink one. Also, to have your divorce proceedings hinge on a Beanie Baby collection? For $25 to $5,000. Yeah. Come on, guys. Get over it. No, I don't want the IRK account, okay? I want the Beanie Babies. Harold? I don't want the house in France. I want the pink Beanie baby. I need that platypus, goddammit. So Wikipedia also came in clutch with some Beanie Baby information. And it was, so they came, I got the top 10 Beanie Babies from them, from the time, okay? So this is the resale value of a Beanie Baby. And some of these I looked up and they were still on eBay. So if you want a fun thing to do on a Saturday. Patty the platypus. Sold for $19,500. Princess the Bear, which was after Princess Diana, sold for $600,000. Claude the Crab, $40,000. Peace Bear, $35,000. Bubbles, $176,000. Snort the Red Bull, $25,000. Jake the Duck, $50,000. Valentino Bear, which was to Valentine's Bear, for $40,000. And hippity hoppity floppity bunnies is thirty thousand, and Piccadilly Attic, which okay, what, what is was that? that one? A clown bear. Ooh, no, pass for one hundred and twenty-five thousand. And the thing with the tags is like now the resale value on them is higher if the tag has a misprint. Like if oh, the, so guys, you need to go to your parents' house and get that bin out and just start rifling through that shit. Mom, if you still got yours, we're going to go look. I do kind of remember my mom having a couple of these. So there you go. Your mom wasn't all the way wrong. No, but I still didn't like standing in line. No. Okay. So some items actually are quite valuable from um, one of my favorite photographers, Ansel Adams, which Linda had a an estate sale and it was in the hills of Pocatello. You had to drive this. It was a little scary getting up there. But um, this woman apparently had taken classes from Ansel Adams and the family wasn't sure 
which prints were hers and which could have possibly been his. <laughs> which is okay so i'm on the outside of this one i did not know who ansel adams was so when i saw it listed in the estates i was like well who the fuck is that yeah and i li- <laughs> i think that's the only reason i went was to get my hands on some of those well, i'm glad you did because um i did buy two i had 10 in my hands but my husband <laughs> vetoed some of them, which probably is going to bite me in the ass later. But so two of the prints I had gotten were they were ocean prints because I love anything ocean. Uh, but the the pictures that I <laughs> if this isn't his, that woman was amazing. She was just as good wow. because you could. I haven't seen him yet. You'll have to. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to take pictures we'll put up on Instagram. But um. So the information uh, we looked up on Mr. Ansel Adams was on YouTube, how Ansel Adams revelized landscape photography. And I also looked up on biography.com. So Ansel Adams was born in San Francisco in 1902. He was an only child, kind of got the sense that he was a handful of a child. Yeah, I think he probably would have been diagnosed with probably like ADHD yeah. or ADD. Yeah, from reading what it, some of the stuff. <laughs> yeah, what they were saying. I was like, oh, oh, okay. But, um, so he he played piano and he, you could tell that he dabbled in some stuff, but he, once he went to Yosemite, that's when his passion started in 1916 when they visited there for the first time. Quite quickly after that, he learned techniques of to be a photographer, including the dark room techniques. And he read magazines and got, he pretty much did everything he could to get his hands on photography information. And everything that when I was reading about him too, was everything he dabbled in became a complete and utter obsession. Yeah. He had to master it. Which is another ADHD. Yeah. The, the fixation it, aspect. Yeah. But he struggled with the way that his photos would look because he couldn't get him to look like he pictured him in his mind, which if anybody has taken a photo with their phone, it's like, that's not what I'm looking at. That sun doesn't look like a big red ball. Mm -hmm. So one of his photos, he was climbing to the diving board in Yosemite. And with the last plate in his hands, Ainsel applied a filter to mimic the dark sky visualizing it and when he developed the photo he was hooked visualizing and finding the zone systems the technique was used to decide the proper exposure development and desired results of print at the time so he he essentially created modern created photography. modern photography because that zone chart that they created it sounds kind of like what but they had this whole list of like okay if you're sitting in a half-lit room with a model that is fair skinned against this color background this is where you need to set everything so that it processed correctly in the dark room right to get what you were looking and at. i have taken some photography classes in the technique behind it for somebody to figure all that out on their own was is mind-blowning. And to, fact, yeah, put from his brain to what he was shooting. Because yeah. the diving board picture in Yosemite, he just like put a filter over it and was like, I think this will work. And it was the last, like, this, this is the last La- chance. It was either going to work or it wasn't. Yeah. Wow. 
So Adam's zone system covered all the bases on how to take and develop the best photos. He was hired as a commercial photographer and was absent for his children's birth because he was obsessed with mastering photography and was criticized for capturing landscapes instead of civil plight during the Depression, which at that time I could see why he would want to do that. Yeah, you're trying from to it. bring something so people aren't, I don't know, stuck. Because mm-hmm. I do that now. Well, and he wasn't really a portrait photographer either. No, and he never, never. He was landscaping, and you know, col- he was he was more focused on shooting the beauty of the country he lived in. He was very much an environmentalist in yeah. that fact. Yeah. Um, Adams is touted for the world's most important landscape photography passionate environmentalist he spent the last 20 years of his life printing his work for people to see he was the first mass marketed fine art photographer in the world he earned a retrospect from the museum of modern art new york he was awarded the presidential medal of honor the nation's highest civilian honor given in 1980 he passed away in 1983 at the age of 82 he is immortalized in his black and white imagery of the west to this day and if you haven't looked at his photos of New Mexico, like you just feel like you're sitting there. He really had uh, the best eye to capture a vast landscape and frame it correctly to make it feel uh, either if it was a vast landscape, he could make it seem really small and meek. Mm-hmm. Or if it was a small one, he could make it seem gigantic like the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And like his pictures with the moon and stuff like. You just feel like you're the only one there. Yeah. Yeah. Now it was like, oh, I wish I would have got some of those pictures. I know. And she has that beautiful picture of, it's of San Francisco mm-hmm. and it's looking. It's the trolleys. The trolleys. And it's looking up and you can see, let me see if I can find it. I'll put it on the Instagram. You can see the people walking on the very top. Yeah, and it takes you a second to be like, what am I looking at? And then once you realize, it was like, how in the hell did he do that? Like, I just imagine him like laying on the ground, like trying to like get as close as he can. Yeah, it was, it's very cool. Another really cool thing we want to touch on really quick was in the uh, estate sale walkthrough was we talked about Roseville Pottery, Mm -hmm. which I didn't know anything about. I didn't either. I've seen it. Yeah. And now I'm mad about it. Again, sorry, we gave you more things to look for. <laughs> so this article, just this quick little write-up on it, is from the sprucecrafts.com. This is written by Pamela Wiggins in October 2nd of 2019. The Roseville Pottery Company began producing utility lines more than 100 years ago in Roseville, Ohio. In 1898, the company moved to modern facilities in Zanesville and entered the art pottery market in early 1900s to compete with manufacturers such as Rookwood. And you could see it in the time because a lot of the styling is very Art Deco. Very Art Deco. Yeah. And the colors They're are very... Kind of pastel and muted. Yeah. A like, lot of this neutrals. This is the stuff you would probably see in your grandma's house. 100%. 100%. Mm-hmm. And Roseville's first art line, Rosane, concentrated on darker backgrounds with painted artwork featuring portraits, nature scenes, florals, and animals. And they were all popular themes incorporated into early 20th century pottery. The pottery's cremo line, which is extremely rare and valuable, is said to have been created using rosane blanks. So they were making it after that manufacturing bit. Some of the subsequent Roseville lines emulated low-relief pottery of the ancient Egyptians and the high-gloss deep red vessels of the Chinese. 
Later patterns decorated with designs inspired by nature are more commonly found by collectors today because the ones I've always seen are like floral motifs. Yeah, like the lilies. Lilies, yes. Mm -hmm. And then when they say when valuing Roseville, although prices have kind of stabilized somewhat during the recent years, shoppers often have to pay dearly to add a piece of Roseville to their collection. In fact, folks starting collections many years ago often find it hard to spend the money it takes to grow a collection now, which I think is happening to like Pyrex right now and Jadeite. Yeah, which is unfortunate. It is. Like I have seen prices and I'm like, there is no way in mm-hmm. hell I would pay that. No, not to add it for something, especially with some Jadeite, you know, you really don't want to use it because it's so rare. Yeah. And that takes the fun out of it. So the quality varies, obviously, from piece to piece, depending on which collection it was made in. And it was decorated by hand. So the talent of the individual came into play with each item produced. So you may see a lily piece that was painted by, I don't know, Hector. And then the other one was painted by Abigail. And Abigail was much better. So I wonder if that plays in, if there's a way to narrow down who painted what. Oh, never mind. It just answered that question. The most talented and recognized (laughs) names command the most attention from experienced collectors. Pieces with strong mold shapes are also desirable. However, most all genuine Roseville pieces are considered collectible, and even the most common still hold some value today. In excellent condition, they regularly sell for $50 or more through online auctions and in antique stores. The pine cone, wisteria, and sunflower patterns are quite popular and often sell for hundreds per piece when they can be located in very good, excellent condition. Roseville umbrella stands, floor vases, and jardiniers with matching pedestals are increasingly harder to locate at reasonable prices and can sell for well over $1,000. You know, the other interesting thing is, is they had different marks. Mm -hmm. On the bottom. On the bottom. So it made collectors' lives hell because you didn't know... If it was real or not. If it was real because there were so many different markings for it, which, I mean, I guess I understand why, but damn... Yeah, and it was it's so it's hard sometimes to see if this was a reproduction or if it was an original. And there's like charts on like identifying uh, authentic Roseville pottery yeah, it's online. <laughs> it, I just probably will. I'm like I don't know. And that's uh, to me because it's not my style. I think I would overlook it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if something caught my eye. I would probably depending on how much it was, I'd probably get it, but I would be like, I don't, I don't know if this is real Mm -hmm. or I don't know what I'm looking at or, but I mean, again, it's not my collecting, but it's somebody else's. Yep. So we hope you guys enjoyed that little curio corner today. I know we enjoyed learning about all of the items in today's Mm -hmm, show. For sure. If you enjoyed learning about the items in today's show, we would love a review from you either. There's like various places to leave them. Apple, Facebook, or Google are the ones that the powers that be say are great. The only reason we love your reviews is we love to hear your feedback for the show. Yeah. And if there's a antique out there that you want to hear about and learn more, but you don't want to do the work, let us know. I will go down that Google rabbit hole We like to go down the rabbit hole. And to stay up to date when new episodes launch and to see all of the antiques talked about in today's episode, be sure to visit our Instagram, the Mothball Prophecies Original, on Instagram or our website, themothballprophecies.com. And if you have a great family heirloom or antique you want to tell us about, send us an email at, the, at curios at themothballprophecy.com and tell us about your stuff too, because I want to know about it. We are learning stuff left and right that we now are going to be looking for. And if your antique is cool enough, we may share it on a future episode. Yes, so you got to listen. 
Thanks for listening. We hope you guys have a great week and you find cool shit. And always look under the table. Always. See ya. Bye.